today we have an interview with Dr. E. Michael Jones, the author of Libido Dominante, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, The Broken Pump in Tanzania, Julius Nayare and the Collapse of Development Economics, Is No Stone Still Catholic? and Baron Metal, A History of Capitalism as the Conflict between Labour and Usury, as well as many other titles. Dr. Jones is the editor of Culture Wars magazine. Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you very much for coming on. So, I'd like to start, Dr. Jones, by talking about uh, your book, Benedict's Rule, um, which builds on the idea of building Christian small communities, um, being inspired by the example of St. Benedict of Nursia in the 6th century. Could you just explain to us a little bit about the uh, your book there and the idea of uh, a Benedictine revival? Well, I um, I got the idea because I I saw parallels between Benedict's time and, and, and our time right now, uh, specifically with regard to the empire. Uh, Benedict uh, launched his project after the collapse of the Roman Empire. I think that we're seeing uh, the American Empire at, uh, at its last phase, certainly now, more so now than when I wrote the book uh, with Donald Trump and uh, his actions, which I think uh, God is using to bring about an end to the uh, American Empire. But I also saw this in the context of research that I'd done earlier, uh, which was about um, the, another book I wrote called Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal and Ethnic Cleansing. And this was specifically about uh, the destruction of Catholic neighborhoods in the United States and all the big cities of the North, uh, beginning in the period after World War II. The term that uh, was used to uh, justify this wanton destruction of vibrant communities was social engineering. And the government of the United States, after defeating fascism, Europe turned all of its resources uh, toward defeat, defeating the domestic enemy. And the domestic enemy, as of the the after the period immediately after World War II, were the Catholics. The Catholics constituted a fifth column. They were uh, domestic fascism, and I'm quoting here people like Paul Blanchard who became famous in 48 by writing a book called American Freedom and Catholic Power. Uh, and so the elite uh, at that time, which was a WASP elite, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, declared war on Catholics uh, and declared war on them by, uh, first of all, destroying their neighborhoods. They did this uh, under the guise of urban renewal. Uh, there were a number of uh, phases to this. One of them was the building of highways uh, which basically ruined uh, once vibrant cities like Detroit. The other one was the orchestration of uh, black migration up from the south and uh, leveling charges of racism and discrimination against Catholics who simply wanted to preserve the, preserve the integrity of their neighborhoods. So the classic example of this uh, came in the confrontation in 1966 when Martin Luther King came to Chicago. Uh, Martin Luther King had made a name for himself fighting desegregation in the South. There was no such thing as segregation in the North, in the cities cities like Chicago. It did not exist. What you had were basically ethnic colonies from all of the major countries in Europe. And uh, these were uh, construed uh, through the alchemy of the civil rights movement as white, 
and then a segregationist and therefore uh, targeted for destruction. So Martin Luther King arrived, uh, he marched into Marquette Park, started marching around Marquette Park. The people there uh, didn't know what the, what the message was. The message seemed to be that we, they had to get out. They were Lithuanians. And yep. so there was this, this cognitive dissonance here uh, expressed by his uh, his lieutenant, a woman, Dorothy Tillman. She was. They were both befuddled. They, Dorothy Tillman said, down south, you was either black or white. You wasn't none of this Irish or Polish or none of that. And so it was a paradigm that didn't fit. Uh, and uh, as a result, Martin Luther King failed. It was the biggest uh, debacle of his career. But uh, that didn't change the fact that, uh, the, that, that these, these areas were targeted for destruction. It just shows you that this man was dragooned into a, a, a war that he didn't understand. He was dead two years later. So what I saw, uh, uh, I lived through this period. Okay, I was a guinea pig in an experiment that nobody talked about. I was born in 1948, the same year that Paul Blanchard's book came out. In 1954, my family lived in a in an Irish neighborhood in Philadelphia, uh, and uh, it was targeted for extinction by the WASP ruling class in Philadelphia, the Housing Authority, in combination with agents uh, like uh, Leon Sullivan, black minister, who was working for the Ford Foundation, who was the conduit of black people into Philadelphia. And so in 1954, the blacks crossed Lehigh Avenue on their march up Broad Street, and our family left an Irish neighborhood and moved into a deracinated uh, multi-ethnic suburb where everyone was white instead of being Polish and Irish. Uh, that's the story. Uh, the, I came to this late. I was in Philadelphia doing research on this and came across a parish there, famous parish, uh, Most Blessed Sacrament. It was uh, eight blocks by eight blocks of row houses, uh, densely populated, 100% uh, Catholic. Uh, the biggest had the biggest distinction of having the biggest Catholic grade school in the world at that point. 3,000 students. It had a huge uh, five-story rectory, uh, had a huge uh, uh, four-story convent, a uh, five-story school, all within one square block, and a church that looked like uh, St. Peter's Basilica. That sounds quite the powerhouse. It was. It was a Catholic powerhouse, and it, it basically um, uh, gave more vocations, both nuns and priests, to, this, to the Archdiocese of Philadelphia than any other parish in the area. And between the period from 1966 to 1976, it was ethnically cleansed. Uh, the Irish were driven out of that parish, and, uh, and by the time I arrived, which is when I was doing the book, uh, Slaughter of Cities, in the mid-1990s, it was empty. And so at this point, I had this image of something I called the League of St. Benedict, uh, which was basically a recolonization of abandoned, failing parishes because the people had left. And the recolonization would start by bringing families into these big uh, buildings, into the rectory, empty rectory, empty convent. So you bring the families in, young families, uh, as a kind of incubator. Uh, they get started, they get uh, cheap uh, rent uh, in a high rent area. And uh, once the family gets big enough, they can move back into the neighborhood and you can resettle the, uh, the parish. Well, it's a great idea, except that nobody bought it. 
none, yeah. none of the Catholics. I, I, I peddled this idea to the Benedict to the Benedictines. I went to St. Meinrad Seminary uh, in Southern Indiana. Met with uh, the abbot there, the arch abbot. Uh, he just, uh, you know, great idea, but and it just not got any. Didn't go anywhere. Uh, uh, other people tried to sell it at, at various parishes along the East Coast. No one uh, bought into it, and so the idea just languished and died. I think it's it's fascinating the the kind of parallels you draw with the sixth century, the rise of ethnicity, um, how that ties in with ethnicity and the, and the fall of empire. I'm just going to read a um, very short paragraph from your from your book Benedict's Rule, which should add a bit more context. The Europe which Benedict created now facing another kind of threat. Europe has lost contact with its roots. The Enlightenment, like a vast Chinese wall, separates Europe's contemporary inhabitants from the man who made their culture possible. Cut off from their roots and disillusioned by one failed utopian experiment after another, European man has contracted a spiritual disease whose clearest manifestation is his inability to reproduce. If this sickness is not cured within the course of the next generation, Europe will almost certainly reach the demographic tipping point, at which time it will become a Muslim continent. The same is true, mutatis mutandis, of America. Cities like New York are fast on their way to losing their European character, and they are losing it for much the same reason. The Europeans are not having children. Faced with a different kind of crisis, Benedict did not set out to restore the empire that has failed, nor should we. He instead focused his efforts on a small community, and so should we. And uh, this really struck me because, um, as you're aware, Rod Dreher, um recently published a book which is which has made quite an impact uh, called The Benedict Option, which I think echoes echoes that same kind of uh, conclusion. Um, it, 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 what, what was the kind of reaction to when you when you when you moved to this idea of the, the League of uh, St. Benedicts? Which kind of authorities did you go? Well, the people that uh, liked it went out and tried to sell the idea to the people who own church property, and it, it went nowhere. Yeah. See, I, I, I'm, t- I'm not, uh, I'm, I, 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 I'm handicapped here. I'm familiar with Rod Dreher. I'm familiar with the concept, but I have not read his book. So, but my understanding is that it's preaching a kind of agrarianism, That's a right. Catholic agrarianism. I don't. That's not my idea at all. At yeah. all. I'm an urbanist. Uh, I, 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 I uh, was familiar with the, the new urbanism. I, I grew up in a city. I think that uh, man is by nature a being that lives in cities. It's, uh, that's my under- interpretation of Aristotle's uh, anthropos uh, politikon zoon. Yeah, the idea of the polis. Politikon is based on polis, and polis is the word for city. So man lives in cities with with each other. Man, it's the Catholic thing is not. I mean, maybe I'm contradicting Benedict here, but the Catholic thing is not to run off by yourself, yep. to live by yourself on some godforsaken five acre plot with a double wide and a septic tank. That's not my idea. I I, I tried this in Cincinnati. In Cincinnati, about 25 years ago, I was being invited down there on a regular basis to speak by what was uh, essentially a Latin mass group. There was a Latin mass in Cincinnati at Old St. Mary's, and the people came from a 50-mile radius to go to mass there. That's greater Cincinnati. You know, it's Kentucky, it's Cincinnati. They drove in every Sunday, and they'd get together for one hour a week, and then they'd drive back to their double wide out somewhere. 
I said, look, this is not a community. A community has to be ge geographical. So if you want my advice of how to move forward, you should all move into this neighborhood, namely over the Rhine, which was an old German neighborhood that had been taken over by the blacks for what I just talked about, you know, the ethnic cleansing of German Catholics from Cincinnati. I said, get, get in on the ground floor, buy property, and you'll have a community, live here. Yep. Well, no one would do it, okay, because they were all afraid of the Negro, because they had all, their parents or grandparents had all had bad experience during the, the, the high point of ethnic cleansing, which was like the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And they all had bad stories about it, and they were all hiding out in the suburbs because of those bad stories. So, shortly after I said this, there was a riot because the, the uh, over the Rhine was being gentrified. It was being gentrified by homosexuals, which are the avant-garde of gentrification in every city in this country. And uh, the blacks didn't like it, and they rioted. It didn't amount to much, but then I got all these you know, letters and emails from people saying, we told you so, see, it wasn't safe, blah, blah, blah. Well, they lost their chance, and the people got in on the ground floor, and now they own valuable property, and the Catholics are still isolated. Yep. Because they're still hiding out in the suburbs. And I'm saying this is, this is not my understanding of community, and I think you could have, this is another chance where I tried to sell the idea and, and couldn't do it because the, the main problem is the mind of the Catholic Church at this point. This is the main problem we face in the United States. It's the main problem around the world, I think, in one way or another. The Catholics have internalized the commands of their oppressors and they can't seem to shake it off. And this is part of the problem. Proximity most certainly does, does seem is community. Um, I think I think that's a very good point. What, what would you say to the to the kind of response that by concentrating uh, in in geographically close communities, Catholics would present themselves as a target for uh, a coming persecution of some kind? I don't know if you're familiar with with Dr. Charlie Rice's book Contraception and Persecution, but he, he argues that's the way it's going. Yeah, well, Charlie did the same thing. He ran off to, to the suburbs. I mean, he lives in South Bend here, but he, he's, he's moved as far away from Notre Dame as he could and still get there on time. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew Charlie. Uh, I'm familiar. I'm saying his generation had sought some type of escape. Mm. And I'm saying there is no geographical escape anymore. It, 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 I, I was saying it then. It's certainly true now because everybody's got cell phones. Everybody's linked up to all of the sources of of uh, psychic and spiritual pollution through economic devices. Uh, and you're isolated on top of that. You're physically isolated. That's not Catholic. It's not human. <laughs> it's not. It's, 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 it's uh, American. It's like the cowboy. Or heading off because you get, it's like Idaho. Why do people go to Idaho? Because they can't get along with anybody. Because the American retail. Yeah. You, you, you can you can hide out there. Well, I'm, I'm not interested in hiding out. I mean, they know where I am. If they if they want to send the police for me, they can send the police for me. But they can send the police for you when you're in Idaho too. That's the whole message of yeah. Ruby Ridge and the guy that got killed there. Mm. There's no. It's not a, a, a. There's no physical or geographical solution to the problems that we're facing. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the illusion that this that uh, 
this generation had, and I think that my children's generation, the millennials, understand that, and they are tend to be more city friendly uh, and don't like cars and all those instruments of social engineering. So I think that the tide is turning in terms of consciousness, uh, but uh, uh, it still needs to. The church still needs to uh, get on board here because it's based on physical communities. Physical yep. blocks of ground, that's what a parish is. The entire church is divided up according to little geographical units called parishes. And that's, they under, it's done that way because that geography has to be the basis for community. You can't have a community without geographical proximity. You can have a society uh, of stamp collectors or Latin mass goers or whatever you want, but it's not a community. And community is the basis for political power which is, to get back to my original story here, why these people broke up these Catholic neighborhoods, because they felt that the Catholics had too much political power in the United States. Yeah. So, do you think um, an, an attempt to reclaim that, that sort of patrimony and uh, plant the seeds of authentic Catholic communities would, would be dealt with quite heavily by the by the federal government? And other forces? No. No, that's, those days are over. They're over. This, that, that, that was an era that is gone now. That was the post-World War II era. I mean, right now they, they're not interested because they feel that the Catholics have been dispersed, homogenized, and Americanized, and they're not perceived as a threat uh, anymore. As a matter of fact, they're perceived as so, uh, so weakened that, they could, that the, the government can bully Catholics now. And that's why I sent you that, uh, that pastoral letter by Cardinal Worrell. Yeah. Uh, this was written during the last years of the Obama administration, and they, the government was just going after the Catholics and just beating the crap out of them. Mm. You know, you have to hire homosexuals. You can't fire someone who's a homosexual. Well, all these, all these suddenly anti-discrimination laws that get applied to the Catholic Church in a way that gets applied to no one else, because the Church was weak. And they hated the church, and they knew they could push the church around because they've been pushing the church around for for half a century by that point. And that's the so so that has changed. I mean, the immediate problem has changed because Trump was elected, and Trump is not going to pursue that. He's not going to put someone ahead of the Justice Department who's going to go after Catholics. So that's that problem has changed. But the bigger problem has not changed, and the bigger problem, as Cardinal Worrell rightly said, is identity. The Catholic Church is the victim of identity theft. I think that was good that he said it that way. I'm not sure he understands how deep the problem is, but I think it was good that he's he's articulating the issue. So you think that the American bishops are starting to to wake up to what's happened? Well, let's let's take a, a yes. By comparison, uh, World finally, who is not a hardliner by uh, by any stretch of the imagination finally said, okay, we're not, you can't push us around anymore. We're not going to take it anymore. And he tried to cloak this in terms of re uh, religious freedom. So that was good. I mean, there's something American about that, okay, that we have this kind of re resistance. Uh, by comparison, I sent you that uh, article about the German bishops. Yeah. Uh, the, Ger the German both. bishop. Bishop Bode. The German bishops, uh, they, they, they uh, gay marriage is legal in Germany. Okay, it's legal here too, okay? So we're, we're equal there. But the German bishops now feel some obligation to bless this thing, this abomination, because it's legal. Well, what are you thinking? I think this is crazy. 
I feel, like, I feel like asking the bishops, uh, do you would you have blessed uh, uh, boxcars full of Jews heading to the concentration camp? The government was involved in that, too. Uh, didn't you learn anything yes. from that period of time? Well, I think, I think as you pointed out in, uh, in some of your previous talks, um, that has a lot to do with the the kind of corruption that, that comes about as a result of the church tax and the, the feeling that they need to... Keep, keep their finances flowing by, by basically bowing down to the kind of secular mores. I think it goes back farther than that. I think it goes back to the fact that the Germans were conquered, the United States conquered them, and England conquered them, and they imposed a rigid form, uh, a, a ruthless, vicious form of social engineering on the German people before they imposed it on the Catholics of the United States. It's the same period of time. It's the same sort of thing. Uh, and the Germans have this unfortunate habit of internalizing the commands of their oppressors. And so the Germans end up being more American than the Americans are. We see this now with Angela Merkel. You know, she's more, she's more American than Donald Trump. She's defending something that, that got imposed on her. You know, uh, why are you doing this? not your interest, not the interest of the Germans. This is what the Germans did. This is what they're doing now. They have no, why are they being so uh, forth, uh, volunteering to do things that no one, they have no obligation to do? That's the Germans. So, so it, 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 the Americans are better than the Germans, okay, in that regard. But they still have problems. The best example of resistance that I can come up with is the Polish church, and in particular the Polish bishops. Yeah, they have been successful in dealing with uh, the whole sexual issue. Uh, they uh, and I, I, I'm, I, I hope I'm not being immodest here, but I played some small role in this because uh, about five years ago I was there, uh, did a book tour. Um, that was for uh, Libido Dominante. Yeah, the Polish edition of Libido Dominante came out. Yeah. Okay. And at that point, I, I arrived, uh, we're going to the book tour. The first stop is the uh, chancery, the uh, auditorium for the uh, Archdiocese Cathedral in Warsaw. And uh, the, the bishops, you know, I mean, the publisher's uh, phone is ringing every two minutes. He's got to cancel this thing. I've been denounced as an anti-Semite in some Polish newspaper. So I get to the, uh, I get to the uh, auditorium. There's the chancellor of the diocese. I say a little prayer, go into the church first, go to the will come out. He says, don't worry about it. You're going to give the talk. I give my talk. Everything is fine. The people lined up around the block. I was signing copies of the book. And the next day we go to Wroclaw where there's supposed to be a big protest. And there's no protest. There were six cop cars and no protesters. So the whole thing was, was disappeared. Why did it disappear? Because the Catholic Church showed unity in the face of an assault. And I think that the crucial issue here is unity. Identity and unity, the very things the world is talking about, the very things that we do not have in the church in the United States. So I, I, I was in um, Argentina, and the people there are really down. The Catholics are really down, and I'm trying to uh, encourage them. And just coincidentally, I get an email from Poland. 
Uh, this is just uh, a year ago. I'm in uh, Argentina. I get the email, and the email says, basically, between Lepido Dominandi, the Polish translation, and the Polish bishop's uh, statement on gender ideology, which came out after that, you have destroyed gender ideology in Poland. Well, that made me feel good. Uh, and, and I think it's true. And what I'm saying here is, the secret to this is unity yep. okay uh, I don't we'll never know but uh, what would have happened if the Polish bishop threw me under the bus the way the Catholic uh, University in Washington threw me under the bus when I was uh, someone complained well maybe it wouldn't have happened maybe gender maybe people would still take gay marriage seriously in Poland as it stands now the Poles and the Germans although they're right next to each other exist in two completely different worlds, okay? The Poles now understand that gay marriage is a preposterous figment of the liberal imagination. You cannot do it. We're not taking it seriously. And beyond that, we now understand that it's a form of political control and it's a form of subversion of the Polish nation. And everybody understands that now. So whenever anybody brings up gay marriage in Poland, he's immediately identifies himself as a subversive agent who is working against the interests of the Polish people. That's because the Poles have unity and the United States bishops don't and the German bishops have even less than what they have in the United States. It's funny you mentioned Poland because I visit the country quite regularly and uh, you're, you're certainly right, the country is quite distinctively Catholic in character. There's uh, this kind of ethnic unity there as well. Um, the the EU is, is going after the Polish government with everything they've got. Um, and, and it's quite encouraging to see the churches there uh, packed with, with uh, people of all ages. However, um, if you kind of look below the surface, they've got a birth rate, uh, a fertility rate of something like 1.3, which is one of the lowest in Europe. Um, and some of the, the sort of younger people that I know um, have definitely sort of uh, got the same uh, apathy uh, towards the faith that a lot of the youth in, in the West have as well. And I just wonder if it slowly they're, they're starting to, to sort of succumb to the same problem. I, I, th I think I would see it the other way around, simply because of my experience in Poland. Yeah. Uh, when I was there, a young couple came up to me and said, we're going to get married and we're going to have children because we read your book and we understand what you're talking about. So I think that we may be seeing it, it hit an all-time low, okay, because you, the statistics that you're talking about would have to be in the past, okay? And we're talking about, what, well, what happened in Poland after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the fall of communism? Well, they imported all of the, the stuff uh, from America and the West because they sort of liberation. And I think we may be seeing the end of that. Maybe that era is wearing off. Uh, maybe that's maybe we're, we're we've yet to see the rebound here. Uh, let's 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 compare uh, just as a, a way of comparing. I don't have the statistics, but compare before the bishop, Polish bishop statement on gender ideology and after the Polish bishop statement on gender ideology. I don't know what the statistics would be, but it seems to me that they turned a corner at that point. And at some point, if they really turn the corner, it will show up in the demographic uh, statistics. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it's very interesting what you say about the in the 90s, Poland being uh, kind of subjected to untrammeled 
throw back on that as, as part of this this kind of zeitgeist you're talking about. Um, recently, they banned uh, trading for businesses on on Sundays, and uh, there is uh, quite a lot of uh, sort of natalist policies whereby uh, couples receive a sort of stipend for for each child they have. So there, there does seem to be some kind of inspiration by with, with Catholic social teaching. Yeah, I think so. I think that because their heart and soul was Catholic, and they they, they thought, uh, I mean, we all thought, let's t- face it, in the 1980s, we all thought, well, there's Ronald Reagan and the Pope. They're standing shoulder to shoulder, and they're going to overthrow communism. And we, we, we lived under the illusion somehow that the United States and Catholicism were somehow compatible. Well, that, that illusion's gone. That, that disappeared a long time ago. And uh, I think that uh, it's going to take a while. I mean, these de- de- demo- demographics are like the classic uh, super tanker turning around. It takes a, a while for this thing to show up in statistics. But the consciousness is there. And I think that's where the change begins. It begins in consciousness. So that, that segues quite nicely for a uh, slight change of tack. I want to talk about for the second half of the show. And that relates to your book, Baron Metal, A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. Uh, could you briefly explain what usury is and why it's a sin? Uh, use, usury, let's get to the, uh, usury is interest on a loan. Now, over the course of history, it has been redefined as any uh, exorbitant interest on a loan. But I think that's deceptive. Uh, and I think we're all realizing we have to head back to the classic definition, which is basically any interest on a loan. I'm talking about compound interest, which is what interest means. And this is the definition of the teaching of the Catholic Church, which is in uh, the encyclical Vix Pervainit which was issued in 1745 uh, by Pope Benedict XIV. Why is interest a problem? Well, because compound interest uh, is uh, follows uh, a a geometric progression. Uh, It's always deceptive. It always starts off uh, where you seem to be making some type of moderate payment and the moderate payment you're making seems to be balanced by the fact that you're getting the use of something that you couldn't otherwise have. Let's say like a house, uh, something like that. Uh, But after a while on a floating loan, it becomes unrepayable. This is the uh, story of every floating loan and every country which has a floating loan. Uh, this is, Adam Smith said this, there's no way out. You will, at a certain point, it's usually about between 70 and 80 years, any loan will become unrepayable. In England, this period stretched from the founding of the Bank of England, which was in, believe, uh, 1692, up till the uh, American Revolution. And in fact, it caused the American Revolution because uh, Lord Townsend got together with Adam Smith and he said, how are we going to pay off this loan? And Smith said, well, let the colonies pay for it. And that's why America (laughs) ceased being an American colony. They did not, the Americans did not want to pay off the loan that they did not take out. And they knew it was just a phony deal. They were being lied to by the English. So there is no power on earth that can keep up with compound 
interest. Uh, the, the, one of the examples I bring up in the book uh, is the uh, the uh, Habsburg and their money lenders, the Fugger family from Augsburg in Germany. The Fugger family made their first loan to the Habsburgs in 14, I believe, 1494. And they never charged, they pride themselves on never charging more than 5%. Uh, within the next few years, the Habsburgs came into owning every single gold and silver mine in the New World. Gold and silver were money at that point. Uh, this river of gold and silver flowed into the Habsburgs' coffers, except for what people like Francis Drake, Sir Francis Drake would steal on the way back with his pirates. Uh, so they had all of this gold and silver, and in, uh, in uh, 1555, the Habsburgs went bankrupt. Now, <laughs> that's because of compound interest. A floating loan over that period of time becomes unrepayable, even if you own every gold and silver mine in the New World. That can't save you. So if it's that pernicious, it should be banned uh, completely. And unfortunately, if you read the book, you realize that even the church, when it had full police power, could not bring itself to ban usury, and it came back to bite them one way or another. And that was Jakob uh, Fugger, uh, who's widely seen as one of the, the richest men in history. And indeed, he was the richest man in the world at that time. Uh, yeah, and, and he lobbied the Pope to, uh, continually lobbied the Pope to, to change the rules on uh, the, the charging of interest. Well, yeah, the church uh, would not have uh, accepted that at that point. But the church, let's put it this way, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Fuggers, their, their, their biggest clients were cardinals. Yep. Cardinals of the Catholic Church who had a lot of money and wanted a return on their investment, and the Fuggers guaranteed a good return on their investment. And so as a result, nothing was going to change. So if you have the highest officials in the church making money off interest and usury, why is the church going to enforce its, its rules? It could not do it. It was in that situation. This also caused the problem when the church finally did try to do something, which is to say uh, under when Savonarola took over uh, Florence, the then bankers, papal bankers, were the Medici at that point. We're talking about, uh, about 100 years earlier. And um, uh, the, 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 the Medici uh, the, uh, were usurers, bankers, and uh, in order to stop solve this problem, uh, the Dominicans and the Franciscans came up with a pawn shop for the poor known as the Monte di Pietà. Now, this had to go, th this meant that uh, they charged 5%. There was a big dispute whether 5% was usury or is it a fee, and it went back and forth and so on and so forth, but it was mild compared to the standard rate, which was 44 and a third percent, and that was charged by the Jews. The Jews were in charge of usurious lending in all of the Italian uh, city-states. So the problem here was you could not have Jews in town if you had uh, wanted to form a Monte di Pietà, because the Jews would guarantee if you had money that you wanted to earn interest on, you could go to the Jew and he would give you 20%. Now, there's no place in the world that's going to get 20%. And th the point is that they could offer 20% to the people who had capital to invest because they were charging 44 and a third percent. So that's only half. 
So that's how they made their money. So in order to be, for the reforms to take place, you had to expel the Jews from your city. And at this point, you got into problems because the prince uh, of any principality did not pay 44%. He paid much lower, and so the prince was always inviting the Jews to come in because he got a discount rate and everyone else would suffer uh, because he got cheaper credit. So uh, it comes back again to that to that point uh, that we mentioned earlier of disunity um, in the church. And absolutely, uh, I, I wonder if um, the fact that seventy forty five you said Vex uh, uh, um was the last time the church uh, sort of restated its teaching on the prohibition against usury. Um, do you think the reason why the church hasn't reiterated that teaching? Um, since then, the fact that the church itself is kind of tied up with all sorts of investments, um, the Vatican Bank, etc. No, that's, that's not the reason. The reason is that, and uh, he stated in that encyclical, that the, uh, the financial world had become so complex that he could not issue a blanket statement about all transactions. So he said, basically, I have to reaffirm the principle, usury is wrong, usury is any interest on a loan, However, if you uh, are seeking spiritual advice, you'll have to do it in the private forum by talking to your confessor. So some people have said, oh, oh, the church abandoned its teaching on usury. No, the church did not do that. The church put it into the private forum because of the complexity of financial markets at that time. And uh, those, that's, I, I, I had uh, lunch with John Finnis, the famous uh, uh, moral theologian from your University or Oxford, uh, yep. and I said, "Is Vix Pervanit the teaching of the Catholic Church?" He said, "Yes, yeah. it's the infallible teaching of the Catholic Church." The question is, uh, what do you mean? What do you? Uh, it is uh, let's say five percent. Let's say uh, you're charging five percent interest in an economy where the annual inflation rate is five percent or six percent. Let's say, does that mean you're not? Does that mean there's no interest here? Well, this is something that people have debated. Even someone I respect, like Heinrich Pesch, uh, made accommodations like this. Uh, I don't think they're workable in the long run, but some people have talked this way. So your um, definition of capitalism in your book, Baron Metal, is state-sponsored usury. Um, yes. I wonder if you could just bring us up to date by um, talking about how usury is usurious practices, financialization, leverage buyouts um, were responsible for the, the financial, the world financial crisis uh, well, leading up to 10 years ago. It's very simple. It's very simple. The, the, the economy uh, slows down the more debt that is piled on top of it. I mean, just, just take the average household. Okay, you have X amount of dollars to spend. If if uh, 0.5x is goes to interest payments, that means you only have a half of that to spend on everything else. So everything because this is what I mean by state-sponsored usury. These contracts are now considered sacred because we live in a capitalist world. Okay, in the Middle Ages they were they were criminal. It was criminal. Okay, and so therefore you cannot enforce criminal contracts. So the, the users were not happy because basically what meant, that meant was if the prince uh, didn't uh, didn't pay back his loan, you were stuck. And that's what happened to the Medici. 
Yep. Okay? They got stuck. You lend it to a prince? Well, you better have an army as powerful as the prince's to collect it. And if you don't, he's going to stiff you. This was the purpose of the British Navy. The British Navy was there to basically enforce usurious contracts around the world. The Palmerston Affair is an example. I cover that in the book. Okay? So that's the, that's the, uh, that's the original... Uh, that's, that's the reason uh, that uh, you had the Navy. Okay? But what I'm saying here is the same thing happens inexorably and inevitably because interest by its very nature, will eat away at the economy, and more and more of the, the economy, the money's economy, the economy, the money in that economy will be going to interest payments over time to the point where there's no money, uh, there's no demand, there's no domestic demand. People can't sell anything. Once the people can't sell anything, they can't pay back their loan, and at that point, the economy collapses. That's what happened with the debt the housing loan market in uh, in 2008. It's always the same thing. It never changes. And the one thing that the, in a capitalist economy is that the, the creditors always make out like bandits. That's what Goldman Sachs ha Goldman Sachs got made whole. They made out like bandits. Uh, they should have been, uh, the government should have taken over the thing. They were insolvent. Instead, the government bails them out at full face value. And so as a result, People who have mortgages are now paying a, a, a price for their mortgage that is not at the market price. It's called being underwater. All these houses are underwater. They're paying more for the house than the house is worth. That's killing the economy. Yeah. Even Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman showed up in uh, Iceland. The Icelanders mistakenly asked him for advice, and he said, yeah, pay off your loans. Well, they didn't listen to him. Unfortunately, Ireland did listen to Paul Krugman, and they're saddled with crushing debt. Crushing debt. The Icelanders got away with it. They said, we're not paying. The guy who borrowed that money lives down that street there. You can collect it from him, but we're not paying for it, and they're doing fine. You know, they all these threats, like, we'll never lend you money again, that's all over. The people are falling over themselves to lend money to Iceland. Okay? That's, the, that's what happens when you have unrepayable debt, you simply have to screw up your courage and say, we're not paying, we're defaulting on the loans. Russia did it, they're doing fine. Iceland did it. That's what the, that's what Greece is going to have to do. And with Trump um, kind of looking like he's getting deeper and deeper into deficit finance and just adding to that uh, sovereign debt of the, of the United States, um, when do you think the, uh, the, the crash will come? Um... It will come when it comes. If I knew that, I mean, it, it'll. It, we don't know. It, it's had. It's always a surprise, isn't it? You know, something will happen, like some black swan event. Uh, Russia defaults on its own, and suddenly everything collapses, or or threatens to collapse. We don't know. If I knew that, I, I'd may, I'd be the richest man on earth if I knew what <laughs> it was coming. But uh, it's going. It's inevitable. It's inevitable because it's programmed into the nature of compound interest. At some point the loans become unrepayable and we don't know what's going to set off that crisis. But it's going to happen because it has always happened in the past and there's nothing changed. It's, it's going to happen in the future. We are over leveraged. The problem in this country is lack of demand and there's lack of demand because all of your money is going to the usurers and they are becoming fabulously wealthy 
to the point where, I, I don't know whether you saw the Oxfam statistics, but basically they said now 1% owns 80% of the world's resources. How does that yes, come about? The answer is usury. It happens automatically if you allow usury. And, and to what extent do you think that, that kind of uh, concentration of wealth in, in the top 1% and then also the this accumulation of debt combined with um, a slacking of demand is tied up with the um, sexual revolution and the uh, ubiquity of contraception. So where you've got a situation, the traditional age pyramid is is becoming reversed, and you've got um, all these retirees or seniors, as you call them, um, moving into to nursing homes and uh, and charging, getting costing more to the government, and you've got a smaller and smaller worker base to to pay for all those entitlements. Yes, um, the, the, basically what happened, uh, this happened in the 1970s. The, 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 the opposites, uh, the antitheses of my book are labor and usury. They are opposites. Okay, so what happened in 1973 is that wages stopped going up, and this wages stopped going up at the same time that the credit card arrived. So credit gives people the illusion that somehow they're making the same amount of money that they were wake, making from wages. This is not the case, and uh, once you cross that border, that's when uh, you start to get into trouble. When Cosimo de' Medici became the, uh, the ruler of Florence, he brought the Jews in. He brought the Jews in because he was determined to hold wages down. So usury and labor are antitheses in, in, this, in this equation. So the question is, if you go back to the 1970s, uh, how do you convince the worker uh, to forego uh, wage increase? And the answer is sexual liberation. Uh, we live in this world today. Goldman Sachs is one of the main promoters of gay marriage. Why are they a promoter of gay marriage? Because the whole sexual issue diverts people away from the fact that they are not making the wages that their father made. Yeah. This is the bargain the pact with the devil that uh, Michel Foucault made in the 1970s when he was teaching at Berkeley. Basically, they turned the left from something that demanded economic reform into something that was basically in favor of sexual liberation. The left now is all about sexual liberation, gay marriage, all that type of stuff. The left never talks about wages anymore. They've been completely bought off. And I think that, uh, that, um, it, it explains the connection between uh, sexual liberation and the promotion of usury. The one is to distract you from the other. So you, we're all supposed to act like homosexuals, even if we're not. And that means we're not going to get paid a decent wage. And if, if you go to your boss and say, I want to raise, uh, he'll tell you, go to the gay disco you know, yeah. and forget about your troubles. That's the whole reason, I think, behind the promotion of homosexuality. Because once you're all isolated individuals, you have no family to provide for. So you're, the income that was traditionally there to provide for a family is now just going to one person. And that sounds great if you're that one person. You can indulge yourself in all kinds of stuff until you realize what you're real, you're all, we're all being cheated. All the wage earners are being cheated and it's becoming... We've reached the point now where two people, husband and wife, have to work in order to support a real family. 
and and why is it do you think the, I mean the, the oligarchic class that that encouraged this this uh, social liberation um, can they not see that by doing that they are uh, cutting their economy off at the bottom by by uh, discouraging people from appropriating basically they they don't think in those terms okay they think in the short term the classic expression of this was. Uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes, who said, "In the long run, we're all dead." Uh, they think, uh, "How am I going to make a killing in the next quarter?" How about, this is the, the, they, they simply don't have a time horizon that accommodates things like generational change or the fact that there is uh, some type of demographic collapse going on. Yeah, yeah. That well, it goes back to uh, our Lord's teaching on on mammon and uh, the the whole Bible. Uh, um, well, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jones, um, and uh, wish you all the best. Um, please, please keep up the good work.